You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. This morning is an extended reading from chapter 7, verse 1, through chapter 8, verse 10. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Bekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within sixty-five years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of your Lord God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord God to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to choose the evil and choose the good, refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with the razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters, 
belonging to Maher Shalahashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest, and Zechariah the son of Jerbeakiah, to attest for me. And when I went to the prophetess, she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalahashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia, therefore behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck and its outspread wings, and fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. This is the word of God. Uh, we commonly speak in Christianity as though there are two basic categories of people. Christians and non-Christians. Believers and unbelievers. However, all of us intuitively know that actually there are three categories of people. There are non-Christians, there are nominal Christians, people who call themselves Christians, and then there are converted Christians, born-again Christians, regenerate Christians. We know this is true because Jesus said that in His field there is wheat and there are weeds. He said that in His flock there are sheep And there are goats. We know this because not everyone who claims to be a Christian bears the fruit of truly being converted and regenerate. Nominal Christians are people who have a Christian creed, but they don't have the living Christ. They have a sense of God, but they don't have the Spirit of God. They have a form of godliness, but they've not experienced its power, its efficacy. Here's how Ray Ortland puts it. Too often, what passes for Christianity today is a life legislated by the good example of Jesus and frightened by the threat of divine punishment. That's not what Christianity is, but Ortland says that's what passes for Christianity too often today. How many of you can see yourself in that statement? You respect the example of Jesus. You have a sense of moral responsibility toward God. And yet, you lack a vibrant and living and vital faith in the Lord Jesus. I'm asking that question this morning. I'm setting it up this way because if you're a nominal Christian, I want you to see yourself in the story that we read this morning. See, King Ahaz is a nominal Christian. He's 
visibly a leader of God's people. He's a professing part of the church, the people of God in the Old Testament. But here's the scoop, here's the backstory, here's the real dirt on King Ahaz from the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 28. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals, and he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and burned his own sons as an offering, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out from before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places, and on the hills, and under every green tree. See, Ahaz professed faith in God, but in practice he worshipped the God of the weak. He was a politician after all, and politics is politics, right? If the people want an altar to Baal, if the people want to worship false gods, who is the king to deny them that opportunity? The issue God is putting squarely before us this morning is the issue of unbelief. What does it really mean to trust God? This is a live question for every one of us. The true test of faith is not creed, but crisis. When the odds are stacked against you, when things get tough, when life isn't going your way, who will you trust? What will you do? Whose ways will you walk in? Whose strategies will you lean on? Unbelief is the central question of this text, and it's the central question of our lives. As we come to Isaiah chapter 7, the year is 733 B.C. Uh, The Middle East is being overrun by the imperial bully known as the Assyrian Empire. When Ray Ortland was with us a few months ago, he, he called the Assyrians the Nazis of the ancient Near East. They were systematic in their brutal cruelty. A rough modern day equivalent of their strategy when it came to empire was sort of like Russia's strategy in the Crimean Peninsula. Stick a bunch of troops on the border, threaten invasion, get the weaker nation to back down, and then assimilate territory into their possession. They were very skilled in the art of warfare and very shrewd in their imperial desires. Now, Isaiah lives in Judah. Brought a little map so you can see where we're talking about. Judah's down there in the brown, in the south. Uh, Just to the north of Judah are Israel and Syria. Their headquarters are Samaria and Damascus. That's the capital cities of those two uh, countries. And then to the north and east is the great empire of Assyria, an empire that's growing and gaining new territory every day. Israel and Syria rightly are getting nervous. They're beginning to see that their days are numbered. And so they reach out to Judah and to Ahaz, the king of Judah, and they try to talk him into forming a three-nation coalition to resist the Assyrians. But Ahaz says no. Not surprisingly, they don't exactly love that answer. So they decide to send their armies to attack Judah, conquer Jerusalem, 
throw Ahaz off the throne and replace him with a puppet king who will do what they want, therefore forming a three-nation alliance against the Assyrians. Which is a good way to do things if you just believe in worldly power, right? Take the person who don't agree with you out and put someone in their place who does. This is Israel and Syria's plan, and this is what faces King Ahaz as we come to Isaiah chapter 7. So the text this morning is different than what we've seen thus far in Isaiah because it's narrative. It's a story. And so we just want to engage it as a story. We want to work our way through the contours of the story. We'll make some observations along the way, and and at the end we'll ask the question how this applies to us. I want you to remember the core issue is unbelief. And so I want you to pay close attention to King Ahaz and to how he responds to the gospel message that Isaiah brings. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, the king of Syria and the king of Israel came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. This is not just poetic overstatement. This is a keen emotional insight. You've felt this, haven't you? That sort of fear and anxiety that is deeply disorienting and disconcerting. The kind of fear and anxiety that that you can feel in your stomach and sense in your shoulders. You know this feeling. It's a feeling you work hard to avoid. I remember a specific time in my life when I felt this. And I hesitate to tell this story because my story has a happy ending. And I realize that for some of you, you have stories like this in your life that don't have a happy ending. It was about five years ago. My son Lewis was five years old. My wife called me frantic at nine o'clock in the morning, said Lewis went out to walk the dog a half hour ago and I haven't seen him since. Been all over the neighborhood. I can't find him. And so I got in the car and drove home as fast as I could. And you can imagine all the sort of thoughts and doubts and scenarios that were brewing in my mind, all the anxiety that began to be created, just that, that feeling that I haven't had very often in my life of just in the pit of your stomach, this deep turmoil and anxiety. I got home and we grabbed neighbors and we started to canvas the neighborhood. I asked the garbage man, hey, have you seen a kid walking a dog? They were like, yeah, like 30 minutes ago on a couple streets over. Couldn't find him anywhere. And so things got more and more serious. Told you the story has a happy ending. As I was about to pick up the phone to call the police, Lewis walked up with the dog. He had decided to take the dog on a long walk, which to him meant seriously like two and a half miles through two neighborhoods, down by the grocery store, and then back to our house. I mean, this is just who he is. He's an adventurous kid. And so we had a very intense conversation about what we mean when we say walking the dog and our need to communicate clearly. But if you've been in a situation like that, if you've had a season like that, if you're in a season like that right now, 
You know that feeling, don't you? Isaiah describes that feeling on behalf of King Ahaz and the people. And, and here's what I want you to connect the dots on. Isaiah is telling us that unbelief is never an intellectual decision. It's not like you reason through things and conclude not to trust in God. Unbelief is always provoked by emotion. I feel a certain way. Something's pressing on me. There's something in my life that creates anxiety or fear or turmoil. And my disposition in that moment is unbelief. The test of true faith is not creed, but crisis. In a crisis, the real disposition of your heart comes to the forefront. Unbelief is triggered out of an emotional response to the situation that I'm in. Verse 3, the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear-Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. The place here is very significant because what King Ahaz is doing is he's out inspecting the water supply. Jerusalem was a city that had its water piped in from outside, and he's basically checking the defenses, making sure the city is secure. He's he's actively patrolling the boundaries and trying to make sure that things are safe. God says to Isaiah, go meet him. Where is that? And say to him, verse 4, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. Do you notice how God's word in the situation speaks directly to the emotions that Ahaz is feeling? God doesn't just say abstractly, hey, trust me. He says, Ahaz, I know you're afraid. Don't fear. Don't let your heart be faint. Because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, the fierce anger of Raisin, bummer of a name for that guy, and Syria, and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you. By the way, if you like sarcasm, this is one of the ways the Bible is really clever. So here's what God's doing in this. You notice in verse 1, the name of the king of Israel is Pekah, and he's the son of Remaliah. Remaliah is his dad's name. What God says in the word he delivers to Ahaz is, Hey, Ahaz, these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, uh, resin, and uh, whoever that other guy is, I don't know, his dad was Remaliah, I've kind of forgotten. He, he's, that's how insignificant this king is in the eyes of God. So even in how he tells Isaiah to deliver the news, it's as though God can't even remember the king's name. Throughout this whole narrative, he calls it, yeah, the uh, son of Remaliah, whatever he, whoever he is. Because they've divided evil against you, saying, let us go up to Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. So they've already got a guy picked out who's going to be a better king than Ahaz. Thus says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God. It shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. Hey, Ahaz, don't worry. It's not going to happen. Do you see that what Isaiah is doing here is he's preaching the gospel to King Ahaz? Isaiah is bringing good news 
of a salvation that has already been determined by God, but that is not yet being fully experienced by God's people. Do you see that? Isaiah is delivering to the king news of salvation that has been determined and decreed. God says, it's going to happen, and yet you're not yet fully experiencing it, so you're going to have to trust me. Isaiah is preaching the gospel to King Ahaz. What I want you to see is that what it meant for Ahaz to trust God and what it means for you and I to trust God are the exact same thing. Do not read your Old Testament and conclude these people have lived in a different time, in a different culture. Their world doesn't really apply to me. No, no. Ahaz is asked to trust God in the exact same way that you and I are asked to trust God. God has brought us through His apostles news of a salvation that has been determined and secured, but that we do not yet fully and finally experience. And He asks us to live in the tension between the already and the not yet, trusting His promise. Faith for Ahaz looks just like faith for us. Faith is taking God at His word. Believing that what God says is true. Resting in God's promise. God here makes a promise to Ahaz. It will not stand and it will not come to pass. And what that promise does as Isaiah speaks it is it invites and even demands trust. God is saying, Ahaz, it's not going to happen. I want you to take my word for it. I want you to trust what I'm saying. And notice verse 9b, which is really the crucial verse in this text. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Ahaz, if you don't trust, if you don't choose to believe what I'm saying, here's what the consequences are going to be. You're not going to have any stability at all. You're going to be insecure, unstable, wavering, groundless. Listen to me. Isn't that how anxiety feels? Isn't that exactly what fear feels like? Like I don't have any firm footing. I don't have anything to stand on. I can't count on anything. I feel unstable and insecure. God says, here's your choice. Be firm in faith. Trust me. If you don't, you're not going to have any firmness. Unbelief has consequences. Unbelief is not an intellectual exercise. Unbelief brings consequences into our lives. It causes us to feel unstable and insecure and groundless. Verse 10, again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. How gracious is God? Here's a king wavering in unbelief, not sure if God's word is worth trusting in. And what does God do? He doesn't say, hey Ahaz, come on you pansy, just trust me. He says, hey, ask for a sign. 
Ahaz, I'm so committed to you and to my people. I'm not just going to give you my word. I'm inviting you to ask for a sign. Whatever you want, I'll give you something to confirm my commitment to my promise. Look at Ahaz's response, verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Sounds like a good, pious, godly response, right? He's quoting the book of Deuteronomy, by the way. Except we know from Second Chronicles that Ahaz is not a good, pious, godly man. We know enough about Ahaz's character to know that what he's doing here is not expressing a simple and childlike faith in God. What he's doing is rebelling against God, saying, no, no, God, I, I don't really want to sign. It's okay. I don't want to sign. Why? Because I don't want to be on the hook for whatever you might show me. Ahaz is using the word of God to avoid the reality of God, listen to me, which is a classic move of the nominal Christian. I'm going to use the word of God to avoid the reality of God. You don't ever do this, do you? Except in your missional community. When you talk about the Bible and give the right Bible answer so that you can avoid talking about your soul and what's really going on in you. We do this all the time. We use the Word of God to escape and avoid the reality of God and the things God is actually demanding and inviting us to. Verse 13, And he, that is Isaiah, said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. So let's talk about this sign. What, what is a sign? When God says Ahaz asked for a sign, hey, fine, I'm going to give you one anyway. What is a sign? When you drive out of here this morning, no matter which direction you go, one of the first things you're going to come to is a stop sign. What is a stop sign? It's a piece of metal on a pole, Right? It has zero power to stop your car or to compel you to do anything. So why do you slow down and roll through it? <laughs> because that sign points to a greater reality that has significance and truth and force, right? That sign points to a greater reality called traffic law, which we follow because it's good for us and good for the society we live in. The sign has no power in itself, but it points to, it reveals, it speaks of something greater beyond itself. It's exactly how signs work in the Bible. They are indicators, pointers, that, that signify something beyond themselves. So this morning, at the end of our service, we will participate in one of the signs God has given, the sign of communion. The bread and the wine that are here signify they speak of something greater. They are not merely bread and wine. They speak of, they signify the body of Christ that was broken for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And the reason we partake of them is to remind ourselves of the great realities of the gospel. Likewise, God here in Isaiah 7 is going to give one of the most important signs in the entire Bible. And so let's for a moment... Talk about this sign. 
Therefore, verse 14, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This sign, this word that God is giving has, it points to two realities. One that's very far in the future and one that's very close to the time that Isaiah is speaking. So first of all, this sign, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child and shall call his name Emmanuel, is a clear pointer all the way forward to the New Testament and the coming of the Lord Jesus. Matthew, the gospel writer, at the birth of Christ, looks back on this promise in Isaiah 7 and says, yep, that was talking about the birth of the Lord Jesus. See, notice who Isaiah is talking to. He says in verse 13, Hear then, O house of David. Not, hear then, King Ahaz. So he's not speaking just to Ahaz. He's speaking more broadly to the entire Davidic dynasty that Ahaz represents. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God had made a promise to King David that for the rest of the history of the world, one of David's descendants would sit on the throne of God's people. God's been faithful to that promise all the way through time. And what God's saying here to King Ahaz is that that, because of Ahaz's unbelief, because of his unwillingness to take God at his word, that Davidic dynasty is now going to crumble that line of kings is now going to sort of go underground. It will, of course, continue through the bearing of children, but what's going to happen is 700 years in the future, that Davidic dynasty will have been so decimated that the heir of that promise will be a common carpenter who lives in Nazareth. This sign points, first of all, to the coming of the Lord Jesus, the one who will come to inherit the promises to David and step into the seat that Ahaz has failed to succeed in. Failed to succeed is kind of redundant, isn't it? It's failed to persist in or be faithful in. So this sign of Emmanuel is, first of all, a clear indicator of the coming of Jesus. And even in the name that Emmanuel means, God with us, right? Matthew looks back on that and says, hey, that... That's speaking of Christ. That's speaking of God coming to earth in the person of His Son, born of a virgin. However, this prophecy, this sign, also has a referent in Isaiah's own day. Look at verse 16. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, that's the Jewish bar mitzvah ceremony, that's the age of 12, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The function of this sign is to serve in two ways. One, long-term referent, God with us, the Lord Jesus Christ, the heir of the throne of David. Short-term referent, hey Ahaz, there's going to be a child born, and before he's even 12 years old, these two kings of Israel and Syria aren't even going to exist anymore. Their kingdoms are going to be wiped off the map. This is an immediate referent in Isaiah's own day. And the word virgin in Hebrew is fluid enough to allow for both of these reference. It's a fascinating word, and the history of its translation is fascinating because it means, on the one hand, virgin. So when we say Jesus was born of a virgin, we mean born of a virgin. This is the the miraculous conception of the Lord Jesus by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. But also, this word can mean very young woman, one of whose characteristics would also be virginity. 
And in Isaiah's own day, what it's saying is this isn't some miraculous birth. This is a young woman in Israel who's going to have a child. And before that child grows up to be 12, these two kings are going away. And guess what? 13 years after Isaiah said this, Israel and Syria were both gone. Wiped off the map. So this is a sign for King Ahaz and also a sign for the people of God and for the dynasty, the house of David that King Ahaz represents. God has preached the gospel to Ahaz. He's delivered to Ahaz good news of a coming salvation and invited Ahaz to believe that promise, but Ahaz instead has opted for self-salvation. So rather than trusting in the word of God that this will not come to pass, here's what Ahaz did. We know this from the books of Kings and Chronicles. Instead, Ahaz reached out for help to the king of Assyria. Which Ray Ortland says, is like a mouse being attacked by two rats who cries out to the cat to come and help him. The cat came, but the mouse ended up as dessert. And so God, in response to Ahaz's unbelief, in response to Ahaz's decision not to trust God, but to reach out instead to the king of Assyria and pursue some other salvation besides the one that God was promising, in response, God brings judgment. Look at verse 17. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house, the Davidic dynasty, Such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. God essentially says to Ahaz, oh, if you want the king of Assyria, you're going to get him in a way that you don't want. The rest of the chapter goes on to say, here's how it's going to work. Here's what this is going to reap for you, Ahaz. Your unbelief has sown a seed. Here's what it's going to reap. The Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will come and settle in the steep ravines and the clefts of the rocks. God goes on to describe that what's going to happen is that people eat curds and honey, which is the food of nomads. It means they're going to be a nomadic people. They're not going to have a home. He goes on to describe that where there's a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels, there's going to be briars and thorns. In other words, all the land that right now is cultivated and well taken care of is going to become wild and neglected because there won't be people there to take care of it. He's describing to Ahaz the sort of decreation and instability that's going to come with the Assyrian invasion. Now, we haven't gotten to the end of the text yet, but but isn't it true that anytime we read about judgment in the Bible, we think negatively of it, right? We automatically assume this isn't good. God isn't good. Why is he bringing judgment? Judgment in our minds is never a good thing. It's always a bad thing. Why is that? I think it's because we don't see the grace of God in judgment. We don't see how God in judgment is actually bringing grace. Think about the cross of Jesus Christ, right? judgment on sin, but also grace. It's the great sign 
the great symbol that reminds us that God's judgment is not a negative thing. It is, in fact, a positive thing that in God's judgment, He always brings to His people grace. See, when God brings judgment, it's to purify His people. It's to turn nominal Christians into vibrant, faithful, regenerate Christians. It's to renew faith and holiness and obedience among His people. God doesn't bring judgment to destroy us, but rather to save us corporately. God is out to gather a people for Himself. And part of what He needs to do in gathering that people is to judge all of our foolishness and our unrepentance, to purify us and refine us, make us more holy and more obedient so that we bear His image more faithfully. It's exactly what He's doing in bringing the king of Assyria in judgment on his people. Look at chapter 8, verse 5. The Lord spoke to me again. This is Isaiah speaking. Because this people, notice this, God is not just out for your individual salvation, He's out for the salvation of a people. Because this people has refused, now catch the water imagery here, the waters of Shiloh that flow gently. This is a metaphor for the gospel. Because you've refused this gently flowing stream of good news that brings refreshment and life and vitality. And instead, you rejoice over Rezin and that one guy who I can't remember his name. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, many and mighty, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels, and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Do you see what God is saying here? Saying, hey, you've rejected the gently flowing stream of the gospel. Here's what you're going to get. You're going to get a flood. You're going to get deluged by the king of Assyria, but notice, you won't be drowned. God's people aren't going to be submerged. They're not going to be wiped away. The the flood is going to reach even to the neck, and then it's going to subside. God is not out to destroy His people. He's out to preserve His people. He's out to save His people. He's out to show grace to His people, and His judgment on sin is evidence of His commitment to showing us grace. And so in verses 9 and 10, this passage ends with a word of hope. It ends with Isaiah now speaking to the nations, to Assyria and to Syria and to Israel and to all the surrounding peoples. Notice verse 9. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand for God is with us. The last word of this text is the word Emmanuel. God says, I'm going to have the last word. You nations, speak all you want. Here's the last word. God is with us. God in this text, after promising judgment reassures us of His presence and points us forward 
to the coming of King Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. See, King Ahaz failed. He wavered in unbelief. And his people paid the price. He, he invited and brought God's judgment upon the entire nation. And like him, we waver in unbelief and the people around us pay the price, don't they? We have a hard time believing and resting in the promises of God. So what hope is there for us? Emmanuel. The hope for us is that a virgin conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Emmanuel, God with us. He knew how to refuse the evil and choose the good. And he did so as our substitute in our place. He strapped on his armor and shattered our enemies of Satan, sin, and death. And he invites us to believe, to trust, to take him at his word, to reject all of our strategies of self-salvation and to trust him to save us. To rest in Him and in what He provides for us. Here's the core message of Isaiah 7 and 8. God is with us. The problem this text confronts is the problem of unbelief. We are like King Ahaz. We have a tendency toward unbelief. Let's talk specifically though, what does our unbelief look like? What does unbelief look like for you and me? Doesn't it essentially look like this? God is with me when things are going well. But when I am in crisis, when things are not going well, God is not with me. I don't ever doubt the promises and the presence of God when life is good. I doubt the promises and the presence of God when life is bad or when life is hard. When my marriage is in crisis, God's not with me. When I face the crisis of infertility, God's not with me. When I struggle with the crisis of same-sex attraction, God is not with me. When I'm at odds with a close friend, God is not with me. When I'm struggling with depression, God is not with me. Isn't that what unbelief looks like for us? God is saying to you this morning, I am with you. I've sent my son as a sign to testify to the seriousness of my commitment to be with you. And I'm asking you to believe it and to live as though it is true. The test of true faith is not creed, but crisis. In the hard seasons, in the difficult places, will we trust in God or will we avoid Him? Will we trust God to save us or will we run to another form of salvation? So what does trusting God look like? I mean... We need to answer that question, don't we? Because isn't it great for you to come to church and hear a message, hey, trust God. 
you're like, thanks, pastor. That's nice and ambiguous. I'll be happy to do that. What does that mean even, right? So let's talk for a minute about what, what does that look like? What does that mean on Monday morning or on Thursday afternoon? What does it mean to trust God in the midst of crisis? It means, quite simply, taking God at His word and acting as though what He says is true. See, for us, we like to divorce belief and action. God says, no, 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 you can't separate those two things. So trusting me means taking my word as true and acting as though it is. In the moment, in your real situation. So, whatever your crisis is, just ask yourself the question, what would King Ahaz do? That's what unbelief will look like. Okay? So let's take just one example. Let's take one example that is happening at various levels and in various lives among the people of Cormdale. Let's take the example of a troubled marriage. That's your crisis. Not all of you, but some of you. So let me use this as an example. And those of you that that's not your crisis, just, just reason through the application to your crisis. In a troubled marriage, here's a King Ahaz strategy. Return evil for evil. Harbor bitterness and resentment. Blame the other person. Keep a lawyer on your speed dial. Threaten divorce. Speak harshly to one another. Isolate and separate. These are the kinds of things King Ahaz would do. They're self-salvation strategies. They are, I will save myself from this crisis. What does trust in God look like? Trust in God looks like God is with me in the midst of this troubled marriage. God is with me right now, not in the abstract sense, but present and real and vitally available to me by His Holy Spirit in the midst of this present situation. Which means that by the Holy Spirit, I am actually able to, because God is with me, forgive. Love. Believe the best about someone. Return evil for good. Turn the other cheek. Honor someone in my speech. Love my enemy, even when my enemy is married to me. The promise of God with us means I'm able to do those things right now. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives in me and the presence of God is right now, right here, available to me. That's what trust in God looks like. It doesn't look like pray while you dial the lawyer on speed dial. Now listen. I'm not trying to be overly simplistic here, right? Marriage is complicated. There's a lot of messy situations. Somebody out there right now is going, you don't, know, you don't even know what you're talking. You don't know my situation. I don't. You may need to have a lawyer on speed dial, okay? But what I'm saying is trust in God takes that sort of active, present tense, right now shape. It doesn't mean some divorced, distant, abstract belief that God's out there somewhere. It means God is here right now in this situation and available to me by His Holy Spirit. 
That's the good news of the gospel, my friends. The good news is that God is with us. That's what it means to trust God in the midst of your crisis. So, so you have the power, the freedom, not to act as King Ahaz, but to act as a Christian would. So, so let me close with just a quick word to those of you who are nominal Christians here this morning. Perhaps you're here and, and you would claim to be a Christian and you would say that, yep, I grew up in a religious sort of environment. But, but as you hear me describe that particular example about marriage, what you hear is, I, don't even, I couldn't even ever do that. To go back to Ray Ortland's words, you're familiar with a life legislated by the good example of Jesus, but not with the present tense power of the Holy Spirit to enable you to be different. And if that's you, I want to invite you this morning to the refreshing stream of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not abstract news to be professed in a creed. It is good news for your life right now to be received by faith and believed and rested in. And the good promise of Jesus Christ is that to all who trust in Him, He gives the seal of His Holy Spirit to dwell within you, to give you a new heart and new inclinations and a whole new capacity to do the things that God asks so they no longer feel to you like someone's outside of you telling you to do something you can't and don't want to do, but like someone's inside of you giving you the power to do what you never thought you could. That's the gospel. Would you come this morning? And drink freely from the gently flowing waters of that stream. Let's pray. So God, we invite you. We invite your renewing presence this morning. We acknowledge in our hearts the propensity to unbelief. We acknowledge that we are a lot like King Ahaz. Every day we're tempted to disbelieve your promises and to invent our own strategies for getting ahead, for making it, for surviving. Would you this morning refresh us with the beautiful good news that you are with us? Would you give us the grace to receive and believe the good news that Jesus has died for our sins and has risen from the dead to give us a whole new kind of life. For those who are familiar with that good news but have not yet received it, Father, this morning, just like you describe in this text, would you give us the grace to come and drink, to come and taste of the good water of the gospel in a way that changes us and cleanses us and frees us. Come and work among us faith and repentance and trust. We believe, Father, help our unbelief for your glory. Amen.